Amen. Romans chapter 7. Chapter 7 continues the theme that we began in chapter 6. We, we talked about how the first five chapters focused on justification by faith. And now in chapter 6, we, we began to transition. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 be, really spell out that transition from justification to sanctification. And we, we've defined in, in weeks past what all of that means. And those terms may not be familiar to you. But justification is a process of being declared righteous by God. Amen. Sanctification or holiness is the process of living into that declaration. Amen. Whenever he forgave you of your sins, you repented, you were baptized in the name of Jesus, you were filled with the Holy Ghost, you came out of that water and you, God filled you with his spirit. Amen. And you were declared to be righteous by God. But the truth is you were nothing more than a forgiven sinner. Amen. Holiness, righteousness, godliness, that was, those are concepts you really didn't have any, any grasp of. Sanctification or holiness or, or separation is the process of growing into that declaration that God has already spoken over you. He declared you to be righteous, and over the process of time, you live righteous. Amen. You become what he's already said that you are. Amen. So that means that you're not saved so that you can go back to sin. You're not saved so that you can return back to the lifestyle that you had before you were saved. You're saved so that you can show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And your life reflects the fact that you have been saved. Amen. So we're in this discussion of sanctification, this discussion of living righteous and living holy and living a life that reflects the grace of God. And we learn in chapter 6 that we're now living under the grace of God. We were free from the dominion of the law. We, we did live in the dominion of the law. We were under the law. But now we live in the dominion of grace. We're under grace. And what we've learned in chapter 6 is that that doesn't mean that sin is irrelevant. That doesn't mean that that the moral law of God is irrelevant. That does not mean that we can live any way we want to live and do anything we want to do. Instead, we learn that in many ways, we are slaves now to God. We were slaves to sin. Now we are the slaves of God. We're still under absolute obligation to obey his word and his will, to obey his commandments, to live lives that reflect the word and will of God. We're, we're called to obedience. We're called to righteousness. Amen? Now then that gives rise to another question. If before grace I was expected to fulfill the moral law of God and after grace I am still expected to fulfill the moral law of God then what has changed? What's the difference? I mean, preacher, you told me that before I had to live under the law and I was bound to the law and that it wasn't possible for me to fulfill the law in my flesh, so I failed miserably. But now that Jesus has died for my sins and I've died with him in repentance and I've been buried with him in water baptism and I, I've been filled with his spirit and spirit baptism and I've been set free from serving the law, I now live under grace. I'm now empowered by the spirit of God. What's the difference? I find out now that I've still got to live by the law. 
I find out now that I'm still obligated to the moral law of God. If that's true, then what has changed? That's the question that Paul sets out to answer in chapter 7 and 8. The answer to the question is twofold. First of all, the biggest change is that you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. The spirit of a holy God now lives within you. And if you yield to it like you used to yield to your flesh, if you yield to the spirit of God like you used to yield to sin, the power of God, the spirit of God that lives inside of you will empower you to live righteous, to live a holy life, to live a life that reflects the goodness and glory of God. It will provide for you the power to live a life that pleases God. That's the first change. The second change is the change that this next illustration in the book of Romans emphasizes. Your motivation for obeying the moral law of God has changed in salvation. And that changes everything. The example that Paul uses in this passage is the example of a widow who remarries. She was bound by the law to her first husband. He was a cruel, mean taskmaster because he's likened to the law, and that's what the law was, a cruel, mean taskmaster. But she lived under his rule by the law. She was bound by law to him. But she only did it because of her obligation to the law. She didn't serve him out of love. She served him because she was obligated to serve him. By law, she was bound to him. But he died. And when he died, she was set free from the law. She's no longer bound to him. So she married again. But when she married again, her new husband is a loving, caring husband. And her relationship with him is different than her relationship with the first husband. She loves him. And now she fulfills that law. She's still bound to him just like she was bound to her first husband. But now she fulfills that law from a willing, eager heart. Not out of obligation to the law, but because she loves him. It's out of the depth of her relationship with him. In the example, we are the woman. Guys, I know that's tough for your ego, but that's just the way it is. In the, in the example, we are the woman. Christ is the new husband, and the law was our old husband. And we serve the law out of obligation, but we serve Jesus Christ out of our love for him. We choose him. And we've said this over and over throughout the, the text of chapter 6. You've got a choice now. You've been set free. You, you didn't have any choice. You were under the dominion of sin. You were under the rule of sin. Sin controlled you. You didn't have any choice in the matter. But now you have a choice. You can live righteous. You can live godly. You can serve God. Or you can go back to sin and you can serve that master. But if you serve Jesus Christ, you choose him. And you may be bound to him by law. You may have obligations to him. 
You may still be bound to the moral law of God. Your new husband may place certain restraints upon you. As a matter of fact, he places the same restraints upon you that the old husband placed on you. You're still bound to the moral law of God. But the situation is different. The motivation is different. Because you're not serving him out of obligation. You are serving him out of love. You're not serving him because you're bound by law to serve him. You're serving him because of your relationship with him. The motivation for fulfilling the law has changed. And that's what we see in the next passage. This morning, I'm going to read the whole passage, verses 1 through 6. But I'm only going to get as far as the first verse. Because there's a lot of groundwork to lay here. And I don't have the time to do the whole passage justice. Next Sunday, I will take up the rest of the passage and I'll do the whole passage the next Sunday after that, my wife said. Next Sunday, we're doing a Christmas concert. Amen. But I will take up the whole passage. And I, I don't want to break this passage up. I want to deal with it as a whole because it, the thought is, it has certain continuity through the whole thing. But we're going to kind of introduce it this morning. I want to read the whole text, and then I'm going to deal with chapter or verse 1. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we're delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So let me say this because it's a very, very uh, powerful text. It's a text that's been used for a lot of different reasons over time. Let me say this before we get into where, where we're going. This, this illustration is not about breaking the flow of the letter. Paul is not taking up a separate issue. He's not dealing with the subject of divorce and marriage, although he's using it as an illustration to drive home the point. What he is driving home, though, is the same point that's been made in chapter 6. It is the point that we are not under the dominion of sin. We're not under the dominion of the law. It's the point that it's the, the same thing that was expressed in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. This is what we're building on. He said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And he's using the widow and he's using the divorce and remarriage to show that you can't be you can't have you can't serve two masters. They can't both be alive. Somewhere there's got to be a death. And he's using the widow to illustrate that once you die to the law, you can live in Christ. And once you live in Christ, you're not under the dominion of the law any longer. That's where he's going with this. But first he addressed himself 
to them that know the law, to those that know the law. Now, we know that this book is written to the church in Rome, and we know the church in Rome is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. So we don't have a real clarity about what law exactly Paul is talking about. It could mean the Mosaic law, and if he, if he means the Mosaic law, then he just addressed this portion only to the Jews in the church. He could mean the Roman law, then he's addressed it to everybody there, or he could mean some general law. The, the point is not what law he's talking about. The point is that the, the, the point he's making, the, the thing that he's saying about the law is a general truth. It's true about any system of law anywhere. The law is, in effect... For as long as you're alive. You, the law governs you for as long as you're alive. What he's saying is, brothers, I, I'm sure you know how the law works. The law only controls someone for as long as they're living. But once you die, the law doesn't have any dominion over you. You know, they got, they got vagrancy laws in big cities. You can't lay on the sidewalk and sleep. And if the police officer comes along and he can write you a ticket, but God forbid you lay there and die, he can't write you a ticket anymore. You're not under the law anymore. You've died. The law doesn't have any authority over you. So this is the general principle that sets up the next passage. The law only has dominion over you as long as you're alive. Now, the word dominion, has been the key word throughout the whole discussion of sin and salvation. We, we found out in chapter 6 that we were under the dominion of sin. Sin ruled us. Sin had authority over us. Sin controlled us until we died with Jesus Christ. When we died with Jesus Christ, that dominion of sin was broken. When we died with him, remember we talked about how sin held us captive and sin could, could make us do anything because it controlled us and, and until the point that we died. And you can make a live man do a lot of things, but good luck making a dead man do what you want him to do. Whenever we died, the dominion of sin in our lives was broken. That's why it's so, you can't bypass an altar of repentance and get into the church. You can't bypass the need to come to an altar and die. You have to die. There has to be that process of, of the old man dying out, uh, uh, surrendering self and all of my goals and my plans and all the stuff that I intended for my life and all the, the control that I exert over my life. All of that has to die then it's buried in the waters of baptism. I'm buried with Christ. And then I'm filled with his spirit so that the life that I live is not my own. Amen. I'm bought with a price. I belong to him. Paul said I was crucified with Christ. And yet I live. Not I, but Christ lives within me. Now we find out that just like the dominion of sin was broken by death. What we're seeing in chapter 7 is that the dominion of the law was also broken by death. Sin's dominion only stretched as far as we were alive to sin. But when we died to sin, that dominion was broken. It no longer had power over us. Now we find out that law's dominion only stretched to the point of death. Once you die... You're set free from the dominion of the law. Now, what does it mean to be under the dominion of the law? 
What, what does it look like to live your life under the dominion of the law as far as your relationship to God is concerned? It means that you look at God. You look at his primary role as the giver of the law. And you view the law as the, the, the whip in his hands that he uses to keep you in line. You view the law as the tool that God uses to make you serve him. And when we're under the dominion of the law, the only way that we can be saved is to fulfill the law. You've got to satisfy the law. You've got to live by the law. You've got to be fulfilled to the perfection, the thing that the law requires of you. So whenever you're living under the dominion of the law, your only concern then is not to break the law. Amen? The only way that you can know peace when you're living under the law is to live a perfect life, to never, ever transgress the law. Because once you transgress the law, you face the penalty of the law. The law declares that anybody who transgresses the law is condemned to hell. An eternal separation from God. We don't want that. Amen. The very thought of going to hell should fill us with terror. The very thought of going to hell should make us afraid. We don't want to go to hell. We don't want to be separated from God. We don't want to suffer eternal judgment because we have failed God. Hell is a terrible place. Can I get an amen? We don't hear enough preaching about it. Hell is a terrible, terrible place. Amen. You shouldn't want to go there. And so the threat of hell is the power of the law. Under the law, our primary motivation for not sinning is the terror or fear of hell. I don't sin because I don't want to go to hell. I don't do wrong because, because if I do wrong, I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to face the judgment of God. So we attempt to live right because we don't want to go to hell. We attempt to live right because we don't want to be condemned. We don't want to be judged. We obey the law, not because we love God, not because we want to please God, not because we have a relationship with God, but because we want to escape the penalty of hell. We don't want to transgress the law because we don't want to break the penalty. We don't want to suffer the penalty of breaking the law. Now, that all sounds good, but it becomes a problem for us because we live our lives in bondage to a system that we don't understand. And we live our lives in subjection to a law that we don't love. It's not based on relationship. It's not based on love. That's why Israel in the Old Testament is continually backsliding, continually. You read that and you think all that God did for them and all that God, the ways God's blessed them and the way he's brought them out and the way, and how can they keep turning their back on him? How can they keep backsliding? How can they keep abandoning the grace of God? How can they keep going away from what God has put before them? It seems so simple. But the law restrained them from doing the things that other nations did around them, the things that were sin to God. The law kept them from doing those things, but the, they did it out of the fear of judgment alone. They've tried to live by the law on the basis of the promise that if you transgress the law, you're going to face the judgment of God. 
If you transgress the law, you're gonna, God's going to pour out his wrath on you and your children and the generations are going to follow and you're not going to have peace in the promised land. And so their only motivation for fulfilling the law was shallow. It was fear. The fear of what would happen when they broke the law. The fear of what happens when they when they rouse up the, the wrath of God and they fall under the judgment of God. But eventually what happens is the human desire to do the things that were forbidden, the desire to be like the other nations, to live like the other people, overwhelms their fear of God. And so they commit sin. And then they discover that judgment isn't instantaneous. They don't drop dead. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they take of the forbidden fruit and there are no visible immediate effects. They, they sin and they don't see any result from sinning in a negative, a negative way. And all of a sudden, the fear is diminished. The strength of the law is weakened. Now make no mistake about it, there is a terrible penalty for sin. Make no mistake about it, judgment is coming. They will suffer the wrath of God. God will turn loose judgment against the nation of Israel. But the wrath of God is slow because it allows a space for the mercy of God to work. And God won't judge the nation until he first sends in prophets to try to call the people back to serving God. But men mistake the mercy of God for indifference on God's part. They mistake the fact that judgment isn't swift to an understanding that well, God doesn't really care if I do this. I mean, after all, I did it once and got away with it. I've been living this way for years, preacher. Nothing ever changed. I can do this and get lucky there. I, I did it and nothing really happened. And I, I can do it again if I want to. And nothing's really going to happen then either. And they mistake the mercy of God for indifference on God's part. And so they embrace sin rather than turning from it. I remember mom and dad need to cover their ears. I remember as a young man the first time that I ever used a curse word. I've never told them about it because I didn't want to get whipped. I grew up in a new generation where you still whipped your kids. Amen. I grew up in church. I knew right from wrong. My mom and dad did a few things very right. They taught us the difference between right and wrong. They did a lot of things right. I knew the things that I wasn't supposed to do. They built into me a healthy respect for the judgment of God. And I'll be honest with you. I was a pretty good kid growing up. But it wasn't just because I'm naturally a good kid. It was because I was scared to death of what was going to happen if I broke the law. Amen. I was scared to death of what might happen if I did wrong. I didn't want to get caught doing wrong. I was afraid of what might happen if I did wrong. First of all, daddy was going to beat me. 
There's just no bones about it. Y'all can call Child Protective Services now. He was going to get on me. But it wasn't nearly that bad. But don't tell him. Secondly, not only was I going to get in trouble when I got home, but I was going to be in trouble with God. I didn't want to go to hell. I mean, I really didn't want to go to hell. I lived with a perpetual fear. I don't want to go to hell. That's not entirely a bad thing, folks. But I remember the first time that I used a curse word. I was by myself and I was mad. I don't remember exactly what I was mad about, but I was mad. And I needed to vent and I couldn't trust myself to vent to anybody else. So I was venting to myself. I was stating my case to nobody in particular. I was just ranting and raving all by myself. If you don't do that, that's okay. Us normal people talk to ourselves sometimes. If you don't talk to yourself, you probably got deep psychological problems. So I was going at it, and all of a sudden it happened. I let go with a curse word. I had never cursed before. And for just a moment, I was stunned. And then I was afraid. I thought God was going to reach down out of heaven and take his thumb and squash me like a bug because I had cursed. But then after a moment, I realized I cursed and nothing happened. The earth didn't shift on its axis. A booming voice from heaven didn't call out and condemn me and call down fire and brimstone and destroy me right where I sat and stood. The, the judgments of heaven didn't come raining down on me. Nobody knew I'd cursed but me and God, but I wasn't thinking that far. And so I cursed and nothing drastic happened. You know what happened next? I was emboldened. I let go with a whole string of curse words. Now, I'm sure it was nothing compared to what a Marine drill sergeant does, but in my mind, it was the kind of language to make a sailor blush. And nothing happened. Many times when judgment isn't swift, we interpret that as God doesn't really care. He's lenient. I can get away with this. And the dominion of law in our lives is weakened because the fear is weakened. The judgment that we fear so greatly doesn't happen in the instant when we sin. And so we get the idea that we can sin with impunity. Fear controls you and dominates your life only as long as you truly fear the result of doing wrong. Fear only works to govern you as long as you have a healthy respect for the judgment of God. The law only works as long as you're afraid of what's going to happen when you transgress the law. The strength of the law, the strength of the judgment is fear. 
But when you transgress the law and nothing happens, when you transgress the law and judgment isn't swift, fear is diminished. And the strength of law's dominion and ability to cause you to serve God is weakened. When we live under the dominion of the law, we obey the law not because we love God, not because we want to please God, but because we want to escape the penalty of the law. Living under the law or living under dominion of the law means that you look to the law as your means of salvation. That's how I'm saved. I fulfill the law. The only way to be saved when you're under the dominion of the law is to completely fulfill the law. But law's dominion is only as strong as our fear of God. Our fear of the judgments of God. As long as we have a healthy respect for the fact that God's going to judge us, then we're bound to live by the law. But when that fear is undermined in our lives, when we lose that primary motivation of fear to live right, that's the plight that Israel kept getting caught in. Those people who lived under the law, they lost their fear of God. They lost their respect for God. They lost their respect for the judgment of God. And then the law didn't have the power to control them. It didn't have the power to stop them from sinning because the threat of judgment is not enough. Eventually you learn that with your kids. I'm going to beat you with a belt loses its meaning when he gets to be 300 pounds or 200 whatever he is and wears a bigger shirt and bigger pants than I do. Amen. Yeah, eventually it loses its authority, just the threat of judgment. We don't live under the dominion of the law. The dominion of the law was based on fear. That dominion went so far, but it ended whenever I died in Jesus Christ. The law's dominion only extended to the point of death. Whenever you died with Christ, you're released from the dominion of the law. The point of the marriage illustration that Paul is about to use in the coming verses is not that we no longer have any responsibility at all to the moral law of God, but rather that our motivation for obedience Obeying the moral law of God has changed. We're not motivated by fear. We're not motivated by the fear of judgment. We're not motivated by the fear of transgressing the law. The Christian is motivated by love for God, by a relationship with God, amen, by the presence and spirit of God that inhabits my life. And there's nothing in this world that's worth trading that for. Now, the end result is the same. The conundrum that we started with, I'm still bound to obey the law of God. I still have to live by the commandments of the word of God. The stuff that is written in this book still matters to me. The end result is still the same. I'm still bound to live a life that is righteous and holy and glorifies God. We serve God. We serve his moral law. But the strength of our righteousness is not in our fear of God. It's a healthy thing to fear God. You ought to have a healthy respect for the judgment of God. But the strength of our righteousness is in our love for God. 
It's in our relationship with God. It's not in the bondage of fear and judgment. It's in the love that we have for God. Now, judgment's still real. Hell is still real. You still need to be reminded, amen, that there is an eternal judgment for sin. All the things that we feared before, they didn't go away. There's still very real judgment. There's still very real wrath. There's still very real penalty for sin. The law is still a necessary component in our lives. We still need to know what it takes to please God. We still need to know what it takes to serve God. We're still accountable for the actions that we take. We're still accountable for the words that we say. We're still accountable for the way we live our lives. But now, we serve God on the basis of a relationship with Him. We know Him. We love him. We live for him. We walk with him. It's not that he has a whip called the law or a baseball bat is the illustration I like to use. It's not like he's following me around with a baseball bat and if you transgress the law, I'm going to break your legs. That's not what he's doing at all. That's not how I serve him. He is my loving God and I am his servant and I owe him my everything. And I live my life out of love for him. Love is a greater motivator than fear. Grace is a greater motivator for righteousness and godliness and holiness than the law ever was. That's the point. Grace doesn't set me free from the need for righteousness and godliness. Grace makes that need even stronger in my life. I don't do it out of fear. I do it out of my great love for him. So essentially what we're doing today is we're laying the groundwork for the discussion that we'll undertake in the next few verses. There isn't enough time for me to have laid this groundwork and then, and then given the rest of the verses a fair treatment. So what we've done this morning is we established the foundation for the illustration that Paul is about to use. We've highlighted one of the primary differences between law and grace. The difference is not my obligation to the moral code, the moral law of God. That has not changed. The difference is the source of my motivation for serving God. That has changed. I don't serve him out of fear. I serve him out of love. So what we see in this first verse is the seed for the thought that Paul is about to expound upon. The law has authority over a person only while they're alive, for their lifetime. However, a big part of our conversion experience is death. We die with Christ in repentance. We're buried with him in water baptism. We're resurrected with him in spirit baptism. When the old man dies... We're liberated from the dominion of the law. We no longer live under the rule of fear. But the law remains. The law didn't change. The law doesn't go away. It is still an expression of what pleases God. It is still an expression of what God desires in our lives. Living under grace does not diminish the demand of the word of God. It does, however, change our motivation. Instead of being motivated by fear, 
we are now motivated by love. It is as if a woman was married to one husband, just like we started, who was domineering and heartless. And she fulfilled her obligation to him out of fear. She fulfilled her obligation to him because of the law. But when he died and she married another husband, her new relationship is based on love and respect. She still fulfills the same obligation. She's still living by the same rules. The obligation to the law hasn't changed. But the reason why she does it is what has changed. So if it accomplishes nothing else, today's lesson should cause you to stop and contemplate your motivation for serving God. Why do you do what you do? Are you serving him out of a sense of obligation, out of fear of the judgment of God? Or do you have a genuine relationship with him? Are you serving him out of a sense of love for him? Fear is a weak motivation. It will fail you. I promise. Love, however, is a strong motivation. It is the essence of Christian service to God and to one another. When they cornered Jesus and they asked him, said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? They were going to try to trick him. But Jesus answered them, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Then he said this, on those two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. The heart of serving God is and always has been love. All of the law hangs on love. Love God. Love people. Go home to open your Bible, turn to the Ten Commandments and classify them. You can put them in two classes. Love God or love people. If you truly love God and you truly love people, you'll fulfill the Ten Commandments. You don't even have to have them written out. All you need to know is you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. All 600 plus laws in the Old Testament can be fulfilled in those two statements. That's not my words. That's not the words of a pastor. That's the word of Jesus Christ. All of the law and the prophets hangs on these two statements. Love God and love people. Would you stand with me? The point this morning, the point that Paul is making by using a marriage illustration is that love is the greatest motivator that there is.